Hey, thank you all for coming today. Welcome to the Hudson Institute. I'm going to start off a little unorthodox. I'm going to give you a, a little scene setter brief up here after I introduce our panelists. So I'm Mike Pregent, uh, here, an adjunct fe fellow here at the Hudson Institute. I'd like to welcome Michael Knights from the Washington Institute of Near East Policy. Michael Knights has some of the, some of the most, uh, some of the, how do I want to say this in a nice way? <laughs> no, no, My, Michael Knights has, has vast experience in Iraq. Uh, he's, he's worked in every province. He's worked with every unit within the Iraqi security forces. He constantly comes back with, with excellent information from Iraqi commanders and U.S. commanders. And he is, is viewed as one of the most intelligent guys out here looking at the Iraq problem set. And I want him on this panel because I disagree with everything he thinks. <laughs> but it'll be good to have him here. And of course, next is, is Jennifer Garofella, who's here um, from the Institute for the Study of War. She's instrumental in, in her organization in giving us the actual order of battle of the Iraqi security forces. Uh, we've been able to lay that, that footprint on a map to show you what all of this looks like. And it, it's good to have you here. She's been here so often that most people now think she's with the Hudson Institute. <laughs> and then, of course, we have Ranj Aladin from Brookings Doha, who wrote an excellent uh, piece in the New York Times about how Iran does what it does and how it needs these uh, networks, these facilitation networks, logistical networks, manning networks, and economic networks in order to do things. And uh, I know those are brief introductions for our panelists, but we're going to have a good, a good conversation here. All right, so we we'll start off with this photo. So this is very, these are two very controversial statements here. Iran's land bridge through Iraq, and the second one, Iraq's security forces were built to facilitate IRGC hegemonic goals. Now I will actually show what I mean by that based on the slides that follow here. Okay, this is Iraq, let's say 2007, during the surge. We could count on these shaded red areas here to push back against what IRGC Quds Force militias wanted to do. This is where we had the Sunni Sons of Iraq, the Awakening. We had Iraqi security forces in the 7th Iraqi Army Division. We had Sunni Arab and Sunni Kurdish units in the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th Iraqi Army Division, which primarily operated in this orange area here, and also the shaded red area here in Mosul. So this is Iraq 2007, where you had a resistance. Now, if you look at 2006, when Israel went into Lebanon, Iran couldn't support them logistically, couldn't support them with manpower, equipment, and the, logistics, the logistical support they would need to repel the Israeli move uh, on Lebanon in 2006. So just want to make sure you know about the situation on the ground as it looked like in, in 2006, 2007. This is what it looks like today. And the reason this slide is important is because the narratives on the left say this doesn't exist. And I'll just highlight a couple. The first one, Iran's land bridge doesn't exist. That's Secretary Mattis saying this. A man I worked for at CINCOM that said he went to bed at night thinking about three things, Iran, Iran, and Iran. The same day he said that the Iranian land bridge didn't exist, he said behind every uh, destabilizing event in the Middle East, you'll find Iran. So I just think that's important. Uh, one of the other comments here is from somebody I served with in Iraq out of the National Security Council that said Iran could not sustain a land bridge even if they had one. Now, this is a layout 
of the IRGC Quds Force militias as of April 8th. This is provided by the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. This is what they do. They have an Iran task force that looks specifically at IRGC Quds Force militias. This is what the land bridge looks like now. Call it a permissive environment, call, a permissive environment, call it freedom of movement for IRGC Quds Force militias. But what's most compelling here is that Iraq has an election May 12th. And these units here that you see from Badr Corps, AH, Asab Ahl Haq, Kitab Hezbollah, Harakat al Nujeba, Sarai al Khurasani, and others form a political party called the Fatah Party. And the Fatah Party is running on May 12th. They may not win the prime minister position, but they will have influence in who does. They may not want the MOD and the MOI because they already control them. They don't need to actually take those ministries. They're looking more at the infrastructure ministries, Minister of Oil, Ministry of Oil, Transportation, and Finance. This is what's needed in order to control land bridge. You need to have these units secure key border crossing points and also key facilitation uh, pathways through Iraq. And this stands for Border Corps, Kitab Hezbollah, AAH, and this is all based on reporting. Uh, their locations, and again, they brag about where they are, and these are unclassified reports that show where, they're at, where they actually are. Going back real quick, these units now have also been integrated into the Iraqi security forces. So our biggest challenge is how do we firewall the U.S. training equip program when these IRGC Quds Force militias are actually in the Iraqi security forces, with the MOI being controlled by Qasem al-Araji, a Bada Corps officer, and the MOI being saturated with Border Corps, not to mention the MOD at key levels in the Iraqi military uh, are also commanded by Border Corps. If it's a Border Corps division commander, you don't need Border Corps brigade commanders. If it's a Border Corps brigade commander, you don't need Border Corps battalion commanders, and so on. The reason I show these side by side is on the left is the current disposition of IRGC Quds Force militias in Iraq, and on the right, is based on an order of battle study from the Institute for the Study of War that lays out the Iraqi security forces uh, at the end of the Mosul operation. They are still relatively in the same locations, and if anything, they've actually shored up their presence. Yeah, okay, so that, thank you, Mike. So the green are Border Corps units. Um, and again, uh, any of you order battle specialists out there, I'm using regiments instead of brigades, forgive me for that. But the green are Border Corps units. 1st Battalion, 3rd Border Brigade, 5th Battalion, 3rd Border Brigade, 10th uh, uh, Battalion, uh, correction, 10th Battalion of one of these brigades as well. Okay, and of course the shaded areas are where they control. These are the crossing ports, Al-Tanaf, Al-Qayyim, Rabia, and Fishkabur. And also the crossing points on the right are the ones that come in from Iran. That photo I took secured this route from Basmak to Rabia. The first photo I showed of that militia checkpoint um, actually uh, controls that east-west corridor, and we'll get into that a little later. This is a very, very busy slide, but the reason it's busy is because I basically overlaid the left onto the right, and what it shows is controlled battle space. In some cases, IRGC Quds Forces, have, IRGC Quds Force militias have primacy over the Iraqi security forces. I overlaid the IRGC Quds Force footprint over the existing uh, Iraqi security forces footprint because they're sharing battle space. They're not fighting. They're facilitating each other's operations. And in most cases, the IRGC Quds Force uh, units actually uh, have primacy. 
What's also very concerning ahead of these elections is these same units are securing voting sites in Iraq. They will decide who gets to go in and who doesn't. So they'll be doing influence operations to get out the vote and influence operations to turn votes, voters away. How do I know this? I'll just say maybe the Peshmerga did it in 2005 when I was an embedded advisor with the Iraqi military. I've, we've seen this happen before. This is what forces do. I've seen this happen. We stopped it. We don't have the footprint to stop it now. We were able to, to be at the actual voting site with the Iraqi military and say you can't do that. We do not have that footprint to stop this. And what we're being told now is that it'll be up to the Iraqi military to stop this from happening. And hopefully that's a test we'll see where the ISF actually comes through there. Why are they where they're at? Well, going back to the first slide of the areas you need to control, the red areas show our traditional Sunni bulwark against what the RGC Quds Force militias wanted to do. And the orange area is where our former, or I wouldn't say former Kurdish allies, but our Kurdish allies that, that found out where we stood after the Kurdish referendum when Qasem Soleimani used RGC Quds Force proxies to move on an ally 60 hours after the president declared the RGC, Quds, RGC in its entirety as a terrorist organization for supporting the RGC Quds Force. This is why they are where they are. We're gonna leave this slide up, and my, my challenge to the panelists and to people in the audience, when you ask questions, is to deconstruct away, okay? This land bridge exists. I don't wanna believe it, so tell me why it doesn't. What's the order, Mike? What's that? Oh yeah, we'll go with you first, Mike. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we've got the panel that we've got today, uh, not just because it represents a spectrum of views, although not as Mike would suggest, um, diametrically opposed, probably we're angles off each other, and that can matter. Um, but also because we've got Syria's side, which I think is very important, because you know if you're looking at what IRGC Quds Force is doing inside Iraq on the Syrian border, um, you know, it's very tightly matched up with what's happening on the other side. Um, so, from my perspective, um, you know, I, I started thinking about how to attack the uh, statements that were made in the invite that went out. I, often, you know, I work pretty close to re to requirement. Um, entrenched footprint in Iraq, land bridge. I think both are true. Both were true in 2013. Both were probably true uh, in 2010, and both will probably be true, I think, in a decade's time. Um, but I want to add what I would call nuance to this, um, thinking about the land bridge as a physical space and thinking about the land bridge particularly as a political space. What's the difference? The difference, I think, is this. You know, I think of the land bridge as a political space, meaning that the Iraqis still have a choice to police that border if and when they want to. At the moment, they're not doing much of that, but I think that's because uh, Iran, the uh, Quds Force proxies, are not really doing too much that would offend them. And in fact, they've still got fragments of ISIS on the other side of the border. Uh, and we can see that with the Iraqis you know, supporting operations inside Syria, including uh, directly with airstrikes. So for the moment, they're fellow travelers. But I think at some point in the future, after ISIS has been ripped down uh, back to a complete insurgent movement, after these elections, uh, and uh, maybe uh, after US uh, presence uh, has uh, bedded down a little bit in Iraq as a uh, reliable partner, 
at some point in the future, we're going to hit a divergence moment between the Iraqi security forces, the Iraqi government, and the Hashid al-Shabi. And I think people break down into one of two tribes on this issue. They either believe that when that moment comes, the Iraqi security forces and the Iraqi government will cave, will fold, or they believe that the Iraqi government and security forces will have resistant capability and will reassert themselves. And I think that's probably one of the key differences you know, between the sort of narratives that myself and Mike have put out there in the past. Now, because I think, I think they'll stand. I think they'll push back. I think there's more resilience there. And I think Mike thinks it's uh, you know, a pretty, pretty bad situation right now in terms of them not being able to push back. When the statement in the invite said that uh, there are no military forces obstructing Iran's strategic movement in the region, and I think, you know, of course, forces do exist. These uh, border areas are filled with, uh, not filled, but, you know, they have a number of credible Iraqi army, uh, border enforcement, federal police, et cetera, et cetera, units. They're not great. They're not what we want. They're going to take a number of years to develop up. We don't even have border forts uh, because ISIS did such a, uh, a method, me methodical job of destroying them all, which was a smart move on their part, and we can't build uh, permanent infrastructure. So, you know, there's going to be a lot of uh, work done on securing up that, that border. There's also a number of credible commanders operating out in Western Anbar, uh, you know, including Anbari commanders who have long-time service in Anbar Operations Command, 7th Iraqi Army Division, uh, and the various subordinate brigades. Um, there's also, I think, a robust national command and control chain sitting behind them that is choosing not to push back on the PMF uh, as hard as it might right now, but will do in the future. And assuming we stay in position, uh, there's also going to be an international coalition that doesn't just involve the US, but involves a number of European partners, including some of the ones that Iran wants most desperately uh, to, uh, to invest in its country and protect it from US sanctions, uh, who will be there watching that border fairly closely. So why, if that's you know, the case, why are they seemingly letting the PMF have essentially control of this board at the moment, and not just you know, any PMF, I'm talking about bad PMF, all the ones that Mike is talking about, Kataiba's Buller, Asaibala, Hak, Harakat Najaba, uh, and, uh, and some elements of Bada as well. Uh, why are they not stopping PMF cross-border movements? Well, it's not as if masses of cross-border movement is being documented uh, by US government at the moment, uh, but there's probably a lot that we're not documenting. And there will be more at some point in the future. You know, think about the Syrian border. What does controlling the Syrian border really mean? Having, I'm sure both of us have spent a fair amount of time on that border. Um, you know, it's just empty desert, most of it. It's not populated. There's hardly any border defenses. It has a historic uh, record of, uh, of really extreme levels of armed smuggling uh, moving across that border even during Saddam's time. Controlling the border means that on the day you want to use the border, you control the border. And controlling it on any other day doesn't matter. And so the question is this. When that day comes that, let's say, there's a war between Iran and Israel and the Iranians want to bring a big, steady flow of replacement Zelzal missiles into uh, Syria and Lebanon through Iraq, on that day, will the Iraqi government push back? Or if it's detected that the Iraqi, uh, that they're doing this preemptively, uh, again, 
will the Iraqi government push back when we start to see that kind of evidence? I think one of the first things we've got to do here is to differentiate between control of the border and knowledge of what's happening on the border. We saw a massive uh, erosion of situational awareness in Iraq between 2011 and 2014, which, caused, which contributed materially to the growth of ISIS. We can't let that happen on the Syrian border. So I think uh, you know, that, that's one thing that we've got to look at. There is, I think, still an Iraqi choice to police that border uh, under certain circumstances. And as long as they have a choice, uh, things can change from where the current situation is. Um, we don't yet know what government of Iraq, what uh, Maliki, what Sada, what some of the other parties, what the Sunnis in Ambar themselves, what the military, what the international coalition, or even what Badr would do uh, if they were told by Iran to allow passage of an Iraq, uh, a Revolutionary Guard armoured brigade or uh, a steady flow of uh, missile systems uh, into, uh, into Syria and Lebanon. Uh, would they push back? Would they try and mollify this? Could they be dissuaded from allowing that to happen by exposure of intelligence, threats of more robust action, possibility of Israeli action? Uh, we don't know those things yet. So, you know, I agree totally with Mike that this is uh, a crappy situation, <clears throat> really crappy. Uh, you know, we currently have uh, that whole border is essentially dominated by bad PMF. And it's not like there are no Iraqi security forces there. They're just not interfering, really, with what they're doing at the present time. Uh, I think they probably would have the capability in the future, particularly if we continue to support them, particularly if we maintain a good presence in uh, al-Assad and particularly continue to build out uh, border forces. Uh, now, I've got other things to say, but yeah, I want to yeah, cede. Um, right. But there's stuff I want to say about later, perhaps, about the second uh, claim made in the, in the, the provocative claim made in the invite, uh, which is that the Fatah coalition you know, will be an instrumental part in building the next Iraqi government, picking the prime minister and controlling the security forces. Again, I think there's a good chance that that's going to happen, but uh, there's also some variables and some possibilities there. And uh, we, need to take a, we need to think very hard about Badr movement, because I don't think they're a movement that can be rubbed out of existence. And they're likely to be powerful, but the question is, where are they headed? And can we affect that trajectory in any way? All right. Thanks, Mike. Oh, thank you. Thank you. So I, I want to go to our other panelists here. So, so Michael mentioned a lot of things where you, where I think there's gaps that we can fill in there. And I'll go ahead and start with you, Jennifer, on, on what your take is on, on the border, because you've been tracking cross-movement of Iraqi militias, specifically IRGC Quds Force militias into Syria, where they've been operating, and, and also uh, the ICW study on, on the, the uh, demographic makeup of the Iraqi security forces and where they're located. Sure, thanks, and thanks for having me back here. I oh, appreciate it. Here. Um, I think I'll start by offering my dislike for the term land bridge, um, because I think the conceptualization that it offers is, is in some ways not helpful for understanding what the Iranian project actually is. Um, land bridge, in my <laughs> mind, sort of conjures the image of a bridge, right? A connection between Iran and primarily Hezbollah, but really you know, the Iranian objective of having um, the capability to fight Israel in the future. And I think that conceptualization of a bridge sort of implies that Iran is trying to bypass Iraq and Syria in order to get to Israel. 
Um, and that certainly is an aspect of what the Iranians are building in the region. But the Iranians are, are deliberately cultivating their control directly or indirectly over governing institutions and security forces across Iraq and Syria. This is a regional hegemonic project. That's explicitly its goal. So yes, this is about you know, providing better logistical support to Hezbollah in a future war with Israel, but it's not only about the preparation for that kind of fight. Um, so I think what we need to actually ask is, what are the Iranians building in the region and how far have they actually progressed in that project? Part of what we saw when we actually mapped the Iraqi security forces and the popular mobilization forces orders of battle is that the Iranians actually have been quite adept at cultivating a sort of what we're calling a shadow command and control structure to allow them to influence the ISF at multiple sort of points of entry at multiple echelons, which is part of what you, what you men mentioned in your opening statement. Um, I do think that that gives the Iranians considerable ability to contest US presence in Iraq if they so choose. Um, but I think what it also means is that the Iranians are deploying Iraqi Shia militias with government of Iraq, of Iraq authority, potentially weapons provided by the United States or others, money, and they're deploying those militias into Syria to fight on behalf of Bashar al-Assad and on multiple occasions in the past year to attack American forces with Iraqi government authority and resources. So that's a very problematic regional situation that the United States currently faces. This isn't just about Iraq. We have US forces, of course, in the East, as I've just mentioned, that are vulnerable. Now, I do agree that the United States and the Iraqi government have not tried and failed to constrain Iran. So we can't yet say you know, that there's no capability to constrain Iran in this entire region, quite frankly, because mm -hmm. the US mission has been limited to counter ISIS, and the Defense Department has been emphatic <laughs> that we are not actively pursuing you know, a military objective vis-a-vis -vis Iran or its proxies. Now, I personally think that that's a mistake because if we were serious, actually, about preparing for a future possibility that we will need to constrain Iran, we should be taking steps now to constrain, to slow the Iranian build-out across the region. And we're not doing that. There's a complete absence of any condition setting that would favor us in a future confrontation. So nobody knows exactly how that will go if and when the US and the Iraqi government mm -hmm. try to start to push back. Um, I do think that there are, there are nexes within the Iraqi security forces that remain committed to countering Iran that haven't taken action in part because the US isn't ready to support mm -hmm. them. I think that they will move. It's anybody's guess how successful they will be, but I think the chances of them being successful continue to degrade the longer we allow Iran and its proxies to strengthen and we remain essentially on the sidelines. And the final point I'd like to offer on this is just that the other regional development that is important to understand the likely trajectories inside of Iraq is that the Iranians are now in a coalition with the Russians. Iranian proxies deployed from Iraq into Syria are working with Russian Spetsnaz. They're working with Hezbollah to call in Russian air power. They're learning Russian military doctrine. They may ultimately get weapon sales from the Russians. They're learning all sorts of tactics, techniques, and procedures that they can export elsewhere in the region, be it to Yemen or back into Iraq. We also have to ask the possibility at a future point, if the US and our partners and allies in the region decide to push back against Iran, what do the Russians decide? The Russians and the Iranians are in a coalition, which in my view extends far beyond the Syrian battle space because they share common interests. One of the shared interests between Russia and Iran is constraining the US and ideally kicking us out of the region. 
So when we play out these scenarios, we actually have to ask how the balance of power is shifting in the region before we start to, you know, to conclude how successful or not the Iraqi security forces could be at starting to interdict those um, trajectories. And the only thing I want to say um, to conclude before I turn back is that we also have a concerning development of the Russians actually putting some effort into cultivating influence in Iraq. So we have the National Security Advisor and PMF Chairman Paula Fayyad going to Moscow multiple times to meet with the so-called quartet of Russia, Iran, um, the, now the Iraqi state, um, Hezbollah, and the Syrians. So it's quartet plus one for Hezbollah. Um, and we could actually see a combined Russo-Iranian move to cultivate this security architecture across the region in a way that constrains the U.S. and kicks us out. And I think that is perhaps the biggest strategic risk that we face moving forward. Just real quick on your comments, excellent comments. Um, the Hikma party, which is the, the wisdom party, the Fatah party, and most of the political parties aligned with, uh, Shia political parties that are run, aligned with Iran are actually asking for the U.S. to exit to exit Iraq. Um, these these IRC Quds Force militias are actually basing around U.S. bases, U.S. training bases. And underneath all of this is something that no one's talking about, but there, we keep getting these floated ideas out of Baghdad. One is to purchase S-400s in Iraq. That's not for Iraq's air defense network. That's for Iran's air defense network. And also underneath that, again, no one's talking about this, is this defense pact that's starting to shape between Tehran, Moscow, Damascus, and Baghdad. They have a targeting operation. The, the recent attack uh, uh, in Syria where Iraq used their F-16s <coughs> to hit quote-unquote ISIS positions was coordinated with that intelligence center that's manned by Russians, Syrians, and Iranians. The U.S. was not part of that. We just authorized airspace use. We, we deconflicted battle space. So to your point, there are things already taking shape in this defense pact that no one's talking about, and again, with the goal to exit the United States. So all the things that we want to do, based on what Michael Knights uh, has said and what we, where we want the ISF to push back, how does it push back when the IRGC Quds Force is in the ISF to begin with and border corps is and as entrenched as it is? And I'll get back to Mike on that question, but I want to, I want to give this to Raj because he's, he's looked at all of these militias and not only in Iraq where, where I focus, he's looked at what they're doing elsewhere. And I'd just like to, to give you the floor to be able to talk about you know, everything you've heard so far and then just make us smart where we've left gaps. Thanks very much, Mike, and thank you for having me back here at Hudson. I think we've really touched on the, the central theme, uh, and that is uh, the one of choice, um, as in do the Iraqis, does the Iraqi state have a choice moving forward about what these militias, these proxies get up to? Uh, do they have a choice about over whether Iran expands its influence in Iraq in the region? And the more we leave the, is the issue untouched, uh, the uh, more the window of doing something about these groups, Iran's influence uh, diminishes. Because ultimately, we have, over the years, thought of these actors as spoilers, as disrupt disruptors. They come in, they destabilize. But there is a process whereby those groups that we've just been discussing and looking at on the maps do evolve into something far more significant than what they initially started off as. So while, of course, we see fighters and, and tanks on those maps, uh, when I look at those maps, I see uh, individuals that could potentially end up as state builders, uh, individuals, factions that refashion societies, refashion states, not just in Iraq, but also Syria. Because that's what conflict and disorder does, especially in highly 
and not just volatile, but, but also highly personalized environments where institutions certainly are critical, but not in the interim, not in the medium term. It does come back to how much presence you have on the ground. Presence equals power. Uh, and I think that's something moving forward the US has to truly uh, appreciate. So ultimately, Iran doesn't just turn up in a country, whether it's Iraq or Syria, uh, mobilize fighters to achieve certain goals and objectives. It ideally wants those actors to become fully entrenched in the local environment, within the political system. Rest assured, in Syria, while of course the, the situation might be messy, it might be multidimensional, but not before long we will see some of these actors, these Iranian proxies in Syria, transitioning into rather viable political parties, for example, factions that contest elections, however credible or authentic they may be or may not be. Uh, and ultimately, in highly militarized environments like you have in Iraq and Syria, uh, others depend on muscle. They provide muscle. They provide prestige because of their wartime popularity. They've spent the past three, four years fighting ISIS, which for many uh, Iraqi Shias and also other communities was perceived as an existential threat. But that's been uh, exploited by these groups. It's always important to remember, although Iran's proxies have fought ISIS, and they have fought uh, remnants of the Ba'ath regime, Arab Sunni militants, but they have shared one thing in common with these groups, and that, and that is that they do not want Iraq to be a success story, at least not on America's terms, not on the terms of the broader international community. So how do they really do this, and what can the US do about it? Well, for starters, I would categorize it into, let's say, communal influence and national state-centric influence, where Iran doesn't go into Iraq or Syria and try to rebuild state institutions, not in the way that we uh, think of it uh, in the West. Rather, it's parallel institutions, it's networks orientated around the Shia faith, around the Iranian regime's ideology, but also they play the long game as well. They recognize that it takes time to nurture groups, to refashion the fabric of the local communities and the societies. And quite frankly, Iran has that benefit, the benefit of geography, of time, local communities, actors, even those factions that do not want to be within Iran's orbit of influence, they know that the US will probably potentially at some point pack up and go home, whereas the Iranians, they stick around. That puts them in a much stronger position, not just to, uh, to coerce, to intimidate, to ensure groups and, fact and factions and individuals do as they wish, but also to offer patronage and partnership. Of course, Iran doesn't play by the rules in these countries. It does intimidate, it kills, it assassinates, it bribes, it provides weapons, finances, and so forth. But at the same time, they do put themselves forward as partners, whether it's Western-aligned groups like the Kurds or Arab Sunnis. At the end of the day, these groups depend on support in a highly regionalized proxy environment in order to survive. I think it's a travesty that post-Kirkuk, uh, the US's foremost allies in the region, historic allies, the Kurds, the Peshmerga, now truly depend on Iran for survival, one could say. So the strategy has shifted dramatically post-Kirkuk, post the referendum, whereby they're now looking towards Tehran just to salvage what they have left. So critically, the US doesn't do what Iran does. That's establish red lines and, and Iran ensures it has the, or Iran does have the track record and the credibility when it comes to those track records. Um, on an individual basis, Qasem Soleimani has invested decades of time and energy into developing relations with the various communities. His deputies himself, they speak the local languages. 
American officials on the ground, they come and go. So that doesn't really inspire much confidence in those groups that could potentially push back or contain uh, Iran, as we, as we would put it. Uh, at the same time, I think there are certain basics in terms of the messaging. It doesn't help when the U.S. is signaling, signaling that it might withdraw its troops, its presence entirely from Syria, from Iraq. Uh, basics such as uh, making it clear, for example, that the recent airstrikes were a one-off operation. Because ultimately, even if, for example, there is reluctance to engage in the use of force, if there is reluctance to deploy troops, uh, to, to have a larger footprint in these countries, the symbolic value and weight of America's narrative should not be underestimated. And quite frankly, whether it's in Tehran, Moscow, whether it's the, Shi the Iran-aligned uh, groups and factions in Baghdad, they haven't had to look behind their shoulders for some years now. A discussion as to what the Americans might do or might not do hasn't been taking place. It might now be taking place, uh, thanks to the unpredictability of this administration, which could be a positive uh, in, in, a, in a rather environment, in, a, in an environment of immense negativity as to what the current administration is up to. So it is a good thing that now, for a change, Iran, Iran-aligned factions are having a discussion as to how the Americans might respond the next time the Assad regime uh, uses chemical weapons, the next time Iran mobilizes its forces in Iraq. Ultimately, messaging the, uh, the symbolic weight and value of America's values, bearing in mind that the region itself ha still believes in fundamental values, whether it's the rule of law, whether it's uh, good governance, democracy, those still resonate in large parts uh, of Iraq, of Syria even. And then that brings us to the question as to whether the U.S. has the ability institutionally to try to enhance its presence, its influence, fill that space that Iran has, has enjoyed uncontested over the past number of years by looking towards the grassroots actors, the bottom-up actors that Mike uh, touched on. Because there's no point talking about you know, whether it's this Shia movement or faction or this uh, cultural organization or socio-political movement, the satirists, unless you plan on capitalizing on those moments of opportunity, those windows of opportunity. So, of course, Iraq has played a critical role in the Syria conflict, but by no means has it been a neutral actor. It, it should be noted that the conventional military forces in Iraq, not just proxies, Iranian proxies in Iraq, share intelligence resources with the Assad regime, with the Russians, and with the Iranians. And rest assured, come the day there is a conflict with the Americans, I would say the first faction, the first main faction on the front lines of that conflict, either directly involved or coordinating, will be the Battle Brigade. There will be immense cooperation between Iraq's conventional military forces and the Iranians, come the day where there might be a confrontation with Israel and the broader confrontation with the U.S. Thank you. Thank you for all that. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to take a series of themes that I've, that I've heard here, and I'm going, to, I'm going to make some statements, and I'm going to ask each one of you to tackle whichever issue you want to tackle. So first off, I'd like to say that Jennifer and I are at a disadvantage because we don't have British <laughs> accents. And, you know, every, everything sounds better with a British accent, whether it's good or whether it's bad. So we're going to try to, to, to counter that disadvantage with, with some facts. Uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. That's a good one. <laughs> All right, so, so I would just say, so I'm going to make a couple statements, and I'm going to, I know who I, I kind of think I know who's going to tackle each issue. What I would say that's different now in Iraq is that the RGC Quds Force actually has an out in the open political party in Fatah, 
and the provocative statement in the invitation that Fatah will decide mm. uh, the next government, um, again, I am a contrarian. I believe that nothing changes if Hadi al-Amri uh, wins or Prime Minister Abadi wins. Prime Minister Abadi still gives uh, Tehran everything they want. Qasem Soleimani has been quoted as saying, Prime Minister Abadi mm -hmm. gives us the United States. Um, Hadi al-Amri, if he's Prime Minister, then I think the mask comes off and we have U.S. levers that we can actually use. So what's different today is this footprint on the ground, the fact that the Peshmerga, with the exception of one brigade, is no longer in the Iraqi security forces, and the brigade that is still active is a PUK brigade south of Erbil to mess with KDP, the KDP footprint. There are no more Sunni battalions, Sunni brigades, and Sunni divisions in the Iraqi security forces. Um, the RGC Quds Force are now in the Iraqi security forces. We keep saying things like Hashid al-Shabi. Well, we're talking about these Quds Force militias that are now in Syria. They're not the ones at the border keeping the Iranians from coming across. And that brings me to my next point about the land bridge. When we say, are the Iranians going to be driving across Iraq in tanks flagged with Iranian flags? No, they're not. They're using proxies. They're using the Iraqi military to facilitate these things. The convoys going across Iraq will not be going through what we call rat lines in the military, these, these little offset roads that cross the border. They'll be using main roads. And they'll be flagged with Iraqi flags. And they'll be allowed cross-border. Uh, that's what we have to look at, is how is the, I, the ISF, as Jennifer stated, being co-opted uh, by entrenched Badakor. And again, Mike, if we could peel Badakor off and have Hadi Al-Amri the day after the election say, you know what, we're going we're gonna to shut down AH and Kitab Hezbollah because, remember, May 12th is not only the Iraqi election date, it's also the day the president decides to walk away from the Iran deal. That's also the day the Iranian Riyal goes <clears throat> in the tank. Mm -hmm. It's also the day we can tell Baghdad, do you want to work with a $19 trillion economy? Or do you want to work with an economy where an egg is equivalent to paying $5 for one egg, meaning $60 a dozen eggs? And, and on the average mean salary in Iran, it means you'd only be able to buy 100 dozen eggs. Or do you want to work with the US military and the US government, our Sunni regional allies, and the coalition you talked about that would have a footprint on the ground? Um, so I know that's a, a lot there. But again, these messages that we keep hearing, you mentioned one-off, and I thought that was, that was key. Secretary Mattis went out of his way to say this was a one-off operation. He also went out of his way to say we will not hit Iranian or Russian forces on the ground. Was that for a domestic audience, or was that for Russia and Iran? And to your point, how did Iran hear that? And what signal does that send when the day after the serious strikes, two militias moved on one of our air bases and cordoned it off, and said, if any more attacks come from this base into Syria, we will attack you. This is unheard of. Like you said, they're not looking over their shoulders anymore, worried about the United States. My last point, the American author authorization for military force, you know, or authorization for the use of military force does not include designated Shia militias, designated terrorist groups, uh, the Shia sect meaning IRGC could force proxies, even though they've been designated as terrorist organizations, we do not have authorization to target them. Iran hears this. The militias hear this. We're basically saying, again, this is an ISIS strategy. 
And in the president's national security strategy, it says, defeat ISIS and curb Iranian influence using allies in the region, regional forces, Iraq. And yet, we don't hear this from our national security uh, apparatus and the key players that are actually looking at Iraq. So I know that's a lot. Uh, Mike, I'll start with you. Whichever of those you'd like to tackle, I just ask that you keep it to, you know, 30 seconds. Jeez. No, I'm just kidding. No, no, no. So you go, and then we'll just go down the panels. All right. So just stop me. I'll keep my eye on you. So um, one thing I would say is um, I really like the way we keep coming back to this issue of the choice, right? Right, right. You know, one way or another, even if we're coming from different directions, we all end up talking about the choices that Iraq has to make. Some people might want to kind of quite forcefully force a choice on Iraq, a kind of an us or them choice. This is unacceptable that Kataiba's bullet steals our tanks. So you've got to just really cut them down or we can't be friends anymore. You know, that's one option. I don't think it's the best tactic personally, and nobody would really put a, that starker choice out there. You know, for my choice, myself and Jim Jeffrey put out a piece recently, Ambassador Jim Jeffrey, on this. You know, my choice would be, you know, explain to the Iraqis very clearly what being a friend of America means. It actually means a hell of a lot to them. You know, when Mosul Dam's broken, who do you go to? Do you go to Iran? <laughs> they can't even build a power station in Baghdad. You don't give them Mosul Dam to look after. You give us Mosul Dam to look after, us and our coalition allies. We're the people who project manage that because we're the only ones you can really trust when the chips are down. Mm. So, you know, it's Mosul, it's IMF World Bank, it's the Kuwait conference, it's uh, bringing Saudi Arabia to your door with all their potential investment. You know, there's, there's a lot that we can offer them in terms of a choice. One of the things, you know, we talked about this, um, the corridor, the land bridge. One of the other things we've got to look at is, I, I don't personally, I'm not saying I worry about the land bridge over to the west and the east, but I think it's something that, you know, when it's time to break it during those kind of wartime conditions, we'll have options to do it and the Iraqis will have options to do it. What I'm interested in, though, is the east-west energy corridor, potentially. Electricity, gas, oil, water also flowing from uh, Iran uh, into Iraq. Um, you know, this corridor, I think, is very interesting. Trade. I would much rather there was a north-south, a primarily a north-south corridor going through Iraq that linked Turkey and the European Union to the Gulf states. And that's why the Saudi initiative, I initially didn't think it was very important, honestly. But it surprised me. And now I think more about it, the more I can see the potential there. So for me, when we're thinking about you know, the, the, the land corridor, let's also think about the energy corridor and the water corridor and the electricity corridor. And let's try and get that flowing as much as possible north-south rather than east-west, linking Iran, Syria, and Hezbollah in Lebanon uh, through Iraq. Um, on Fatah and, and the next government, you know, it, there's a good probability that Fatah is very important in the formation of the next government. It doesn't have to be. There's many combinations of parties in Iraq that could result in the 165 seats required to ratify the next prime minister. But the way elections work, or government formation works in Iraq, is you get the bandwagoning effect. Once it becomes sort of likely somebody's going to be prime minister, once they sense it in the air, then everyone's in. And it becomes a government of everyone and no one, because everyone wants to get that ministry that they want. And you suddenly get a crowding in on the government. And that's what's going to happen, and that's probably going to draw Fatah in. So if Fatah feels like it can't, it's going to learn very quickly whether it can knock Abadi out. And if he looks like he's the future, then they'll be with him and it'll be non-competitive and everyone else will lose their leverage in the, uh, 
in the system, and they'll basically give a body a 100% chance of getting in. Because put the two together, and you're going to get in a body premiership, and you're going to get a badder core MOI. So watching badder, you know, watching the fate of MOI is probably the most important single indicator to tell the importance of FATA. I think uh, in this uh, next government that's going. Can I ask you a very important question? Yeah. Should we stay if the next government that forms tells us to leave? Do we have an argument to stay? I mean, it, it's a it's a possibility. Should we stay? No. Absolutely. Should not. we make the case to stay? Yeah. No, no, no. But, you know, if they, the if they, yeah, no, look, we should fight as hard as we can to keep the strategic framework agreement in place. It's in Iraq's interest. It's in our interest. That's why I say we need to stress what you lose when you lose U.S. military presence. This is not, this is not a salad that you can cherry pick and eat the nice bits. You either keep everything in place, the full scale of the strategic framework agreement, or the strategic framework agreement doesn't hold. You know, the security part is an important part of that relationship. And you can't take that bit out and expect Mosul Dam and everything else right. to still be there. Right. Jennifer, you want to say yeah, something? I would, I would just add in response to that. I think that's true, but the decision that our Iraqi partners will need to make is to weigh what America is providing, which, by the way, is, is of course, relatively limited because we're not doing wholesale stabilization, reconstruction. You know, we're not doing nation building. So the amount of support that the Iraqi state is receiving from us, I actually do think is quite limited, though important. Um, but they have to weigh the risk of losing that with the cost of the pain that the Iranians can bring on them in the future. And so I just think that the calculus that Prime Minister Abadi or the next you know, Prime Minister has to undertake, yes, what America provides is valuable. It's important, and they shouldn't walk away from it. And we should continue to make that case. But the US has clearly demonstrated that we don't have the will to constrain the Iranians in this region. Will that change? I hope so. Right. But does walking away from the JCPOA change that on the ground? Not necessarily. And so the next prime minister has to, has to calculate his, his risks and his potential benefits in that matrix with the additional uh, dynamic that I mentioned of the Russians coming in and potentially offering ways to offset whatever the U.S. would be withdrawing from the Iraqi theater. We'll, we'll give Ron say, and then we'll come back. Yeah, OK. All right, Ron. I, look, I, I would say the Iranians aren't losing any sleep over what um, the U.S. might or might not do in Iraq specifically, in Syria, potentially. Um, but using Mike's uh, example of an Iraqi coming to an American to rebuild the missile dam, they'll do that, uh, and they'll be grateful, they'll love you for it, but they also, they'll also have an imaginary Iranian gun pointing at them at the back of their head that they know can materialize into a real uh, Iranian gun uh, if they cross certain boundaries, certain red lines. And that's why I centered my talk on the importance of red lines and having the credibility to, uh, to, to enforce those. Or, or put it another way, to ensure your rivals can contemplate a scenario where those red lines will be enforced, uh, and potentially with lethal force, of course. Uh, in, in relation to your question, Mike, I, I think look, the, the Iranians have a healthy respect and appreciation for American firepower, hence why you know, they won't be very quick to react to an airstrike in Syria, for example. They'll wait. They'll be strategic. They'll be patient. They'll wait for openings, weaknesses here or there retreat when necessary, and then, of course, when the timing is right, hit back. Right. But also, it helps to have a, a strategy, right? Or let's say a vision. If you're solely concentrated on ISIS and counterterrorism, that won't have the Iranians lose much sleep, because they're engaged in a much bigger project. Essentially, the Iranians have a project, a vision, not just for Iraq and Syria, 
for the landscape of the entire region. So in, in, it's an irony because one would think it would be the other way around, where it would be the Americans who would be the state builders, the, the country that refashions and shapes communities and societies and so forth. But in fact, it's the Iranians now playing the role of state builders uh, in these countries. And again, that's because they have the proximity, they have the patience, uh, and they're willing to stick around, pick up the pieces. And institutionally, they're just designed in a much more, more, more effective way, in, in a way that, is, that enables them to be more effective uh, in that regard. So moving forward, I think there certainly has to be a, a, a vision, let's say, for Iraq, according to which red lines are automatically asserted. But then, of course, the question is, will there be a willingness to enforce those red lines come the day they are tested? Right. America's resolve in Syria will be tested in the, in the coming months, in the years. And that will be the crucial test where not just America, but also its allies on the ground will truly know whether the US has their back, or should they start thinking about uh, approaching, reconciling with the Iranians? And indeed, more worryingly, should they start looking at the Middle East through an Iran-centric lens? Right. So, so the, the Iranians aren't losing any sleep, nor is Baghdad, over the US position in Iraq. But they are worried about the IMF and the World Bank because the IMF and the World Bank are increasingly looking at Iraq, Iraq's economic sectors and seeing the IRGC playing the same sectors they're playing in Iran, now playing in those sectors in Iraq. Uh, and that was some of the concern at the Kuwaiti Reconstruction Conference for American investors. Now, land bridge, nobody likes the term land bridge. We have an opportunity on this panel today to come up with a new doctrinal term we can take credit for, and also the audience members have even come up with something better than land bridge. Um, Mike. To your counter. Well, just a couple of things. You know, I think um, this understate. I think you understate a bit the appreciation that Iraqi leaders have for having the U.S. as an ally. You know, like anyone, they would love to get something for nothing, and frequently they have been able to get something for nothing from us. Uh, you know, when there's, there's been this uh, quadrilateral uh, Russian, Iranian, uh, Iraqi, Syrian intelligence sharing. Uh, you know, my my feeling when they did their first meeting. I think agenda item number one was how do we get the Americans to pay for this, right? Because you know that's uh, you know yeah that's that's basically uh, how things have worked a lot in the past is that you've gen tended to get the U.S. Um, practically for free, and that clearly can't be the case anymore. We need to have some conditions. We need to have right. some red lines. You know, on the other hand, we've shown some flexibility in the past about observing red lines ourselves. Now I don't. I personally think we can push the red lines a bit harder than we have in the past. But to give an example, when CJTF first came in, back into Iraq in 2014-15, uh, you know, one of them was that we wouldn't have unilateral bases, right? Or one of them was that we wouldn't undertake, uh, you know, bring offensive forces in that could be used against uh, Iran, and that we wouldn't undertake unilateral combat operations and things like that. You know, a lot of those things are already coming. Basically, we've reverted to Iran's initial red lines about our presence inside Iraq again. So just, you know, essentially Iraq will always want to have its cake and eat it. They will always want to have us, and they will always want to have the Iranians. And basically, they can't get rid of the Iranians, so they don't get a choice about that. But they'd rather have us in the picture as well for a lot of different reasons, not only do all the goodies that you get from having America on side, but as many very senior Shia politicians <coughs> have told me, they like the effect it has on Iran to have America as your backup. And that may sound like we're being used, like we're the booty call, right? But, you know, the fact is, uh, it does place restraints on Iran. <clears throat> you know, ultimately, uh, America 
is never going to be in the exact same position as Iran in Iraq. We don't have these diplomats that are on it for 20 years. We don't have that cultural fit with these guys, and we occupied them uh, for many, many years, and you know, honestly, you know, killed many thousands of them. Uh, they will never look at us the way they look at the Iranians, at least this current generation of Iraqis. Yet, yet the Sunnis and the Kurds want us there as a counter. You're, you're basically talking about the 60% Shia population of Iraq, where Sunni Arabs and Kurds now want us to stay because of this creeping Iranian influence. So yeah, many I think that's representing 60% of the country. Yeah, yeah, concur. But, you know, the ones who are really running the show. So right. what I'm saying is this anyway. We, we can provide a useful role and serve our own interests as long as we calibrate our presence and our involvement there so that we, are, we offset Iranian influence. We don't create yet another vacuum and leave the ground open for them. Uh, that, that's, you know, the basis of the sort of policies I push forward. What I, yeah. Get them. <laughs> no, the, the way I would respond is, is to reiterate something I actually said last time I was here, which is that it is my view that the U.S. <clears throat> in both Iraq and Syria is evolve, involved enough to be accountable, mm -hmm. but not enough to actually define the outcome. And I think that that's the problem, because I, I, I disagree, actually, with the framing that when the chips were down after ISIS rose, the U.S., was there immediately and that helped you know reaffirm the value of our support because the first thing that happened when Mosul fell was the Iranians deployed with weapons and equipment and ammunition and the popular mobilization forces that are the the elements of the Iranian proxy uh, network are emphatic about this and they're loud about it and right. it's true mm -hmm. the US now part of that is because US decision-making for very good reasons because this is a democracy takes a lot longer than Iranian decision-making and so the Iranians have, you know, home court advantage in some respects, and they also have the advantage of their fast decision-making cycle. And they've lost but, blood and treasure. And we were changing their government formation process. I mean. Yep. So I, I acknowledge all that. The only point I'm making is that the popular mobilization is making an argument about the value of Iranian support and the role of the popular mobilization in the in the defeat of ISIS that is coherent and relies on truth in some instances. And I would submit to you that the rebuttal that is coming from the United States and the anti-ISIS coalition is not sufficient. No. And that is one of the reasons why the political debate around the election is disfavoring a body, or put differently, is favoring this narrative from the Victory Coalition, the Fatah Coalition, that you know we need to withdraw foreign forces, this was a popular mobilization victory, you know, and, and we need to get the United States out. I would submit to you that the salience of that argument reflects you know, part of the effectiveness of this argument that Hadi Al-Amri and the like are making about the value of Iranian support. You know, one thing we, we've seen consistently from Muqtada al-Sadr and Sistani is when they say something that's popular, the fatwa works. You know, when, when Sadr says mobilize against the Americans, there was a mobilization effort. When Sistani said mobilize against ISIS, there was a mobilization effort. When Sadr said there's a ceasefire, there was pushback. When Sistani said not to wear sectarian, not to fly sectarian flags, or align yourself with IRGC Quds Force militias, there was pushback. So I want both Sistani and Sadr to be major players in Iraq and to be able to do things. And Muqtada al-Sadr could actually mobilize a militia that could counter everything the IRGC Quds Force is doing in Iraq. And a lot of people think Muqtada al-Sadr's uh, Saray al-Salam and other groups are aligned with the IRGC Quds Force. They're not anymore. They're off the payroll. He is Iraq's only Shia nationalist left, 
However, what I don't like about Montaro Sauter, and I hope he graduates to a, a different level, is that every time he, he challenges Iran, he's summoned to Iran, and then he goes away for a year. And that's my biggest problem with Montaro Sauter. But I think uh, Sauterists should actually be at these polling sites, and they should make sure that the voters aren't being intimidated. There's no greater friend to the Sunnis now in Iraq than Muqtada al-Sadr's outreach, especially with Saudi Arabia and other places. But again, after the Riyadh trip, he went to Tehran. You know, I want Muqtada al-Sadr to be the person everybody wants him to be. I, I'm just waiting. I'm immovable because I haven't seen facts yet that push him in that direction. Um, to, to your point on Iran got there first, Iran took advantage of this. Uh, ISIS was a reason to get in there and do things. And if you look at their focus when ISIS rolled into Iraq, it wasn't Mosul, it wasn't Ramadi, or, I mean, it wasn't Fallujah, it wasn't. It was to create for a revenge factor based on what happened at at Stryker. And anyone can understand that when 1,600 Shia cadets are one by one executed and thrown into a river. I mean. Uh, again, that, those are the political ads that are going in Baghdad now, where you have Case Ghazali, uh, Haji Shibble, um, Akram al-Kabi, and Qasem Soleimani paying tribute to the martyrs that died at ISIS's hand. So these are powerful messages, the ones that you're talking about, that should resonate well with them in these upcoming elections. And um, you know, that's, that's something we look and we look at these strong voices. The United States should do more, to your point, Jennifer, to Mike's point, um, these messages, how they're interpret, interpreted to Iran, how our strategic messages fail with Iran, to your point, Ranj. Um, who are the players in Iraq, to the panel, each one of you, who are the players in, in Iraq, absent U.S. interference, that, that are going to push back against this? They're going to do these things. Um, again, the snowball effect that you talked about, uh, when people just start getting on board, when they see a prime minister going into position, does that marginalize Sauter if he jumps on board with this Fatah uh, Abadi coalition? Does, is he happy with the ministry? Uh, who are the Iraqis that are going to push back against this? If, generally, if Sadr isn't coming up with an idea, he doesn't like the idea, right? Right, right. So, uh, you know, he's not the kind of guy that is the last guy to get on a coalition. He usually likes to sit in opposition, uh, you know, at that point and distance himself from the, from the consensus. Uh, you know, the, the main people, I, let me put it this way, you know, I don't fear the badder prime minister. <clears throat> what I fear more is this underground role that they've taken. I think, you know, the fashion in Iraq these days, I think people realised it a few years ago, is it sucks to be the minister. It's great to be the guy who controls the minister. Ministers have a target on their back. Uh, they have to do minister stuff. Uh, they can't run around the country being... Hadi Al-Amri. For instance, if Hadi Al-Amri had become the Minister of Defence right. in 2014, it might have actually been better for us. This is the sort of unintended consequence that we face. Or if he'd become Minister of Interior and then a bunch of Baghdad bombings had happened and he got blamed for them, that would have been better than the, the situation we have now. He's been able to spend four years electioneering. But one of the conditions for U.S. support to the ISIS strategy was for Maliki to step down because he was too aligned with Tehran. How would a body have been any different uh, in, that, in that position? I don't think that's why we, we, we wanted him to step down. I think we wanted Maliki to step down because he was seen as having been a primary driver of mismanagement, not closeness to Tehran. Politicizing the Iraqi security forces. Right. And allowing just everything just to ripping apart the machine that had killed al-Qaeda in Iraq the first time. Right, right. 
Jennifer, and then Rob. Yeah, I, I'm not willing to grant that it might have been better for the U.S. for Hadi Lamari to be the Minister of Defense. And I mean, I think- Interior, maybe that. Or either. Because in my view, one of the stated U.S. goals that has been consistent is that we are partnered with a sovereign Iraqi state. And so when the Iranians directly or indirectly control entire ministries and the levers of power, how then can we act like we're partnered with a sovereign state? But, you know, how did having Qasem al-Araji as the minister or even Mohammed Gaban, both better guys, instead of Hadi being their pup, his puppet, basically, why, why are they any better? I don't think they are. They're not any better. Uh, I think that's they're the under point. the radar, the which least, makes them better. What I'm think. saying is, like, if Hadi Lamri is going to control the Ministry of Interior, he might as well have to turn up there every day instead of going to every battlefront looking awesome on TV cameras all day. I just don't think he... He didn't lose anything by not being minister. Maybe he gained something. You never needed to be. You can use uh, like-minded surrogates, and they're all border corps commanders. Qasem al-Raji, you know, it's interesting to see a photo with General Votel meeting with Qasem al-Raji, asking him if, if IRGC Quds Force militias have access to the U.S. training and equip program. And you're asking a Qasem Soleimani lieutenant whether or not the ministry he controls is allowing U.S. funds and equipment to get into the hands of a border-controlled MOI that facilitates the transfer of equipment to Qatab, Hezbollah, and AH. Those are the things that, that we've lost. We've lost a, a level of education on Iraq and who these people are. Qasem al-Raji was detained twice by U.S. Intel and JSOC for providing lethal aid to Qatab, Hezbollah, and AH to kill Americans. And he's the Minister of Interior. Oh, he jokes now about... Uh... I was helping them with prison reform because the prisons that he was in, that we had him in, were so good. Yeah, but but those those things are interesting. I'll just, I'll just come in here. I think, in in, in principle, I, I agree with what Mike Knights has said. But Iraq does have an accountability issue, so I don't think Hadi Alamri being minister and him underperforming or being uh, held uh, responsible for bombings here or there would have resigned necessarily. Because and, and this is a problem that Iraq more generally has. Uh, its elites aren't held accountable. Uh, hence, my uh, my point about the role of civil society. I think the U.S., but also the international community, can play a much better role in uh, empowering uh, bottom-up actors, civil society, and ensuring that the elites are held accountable. Yeah, but right. but that is, of course, a long-term uh, objective that could take a number of years, if not decades. Right, right. But it's important not to lose sight of that. Uh, on Muqtada al-Sadr and Sistani, right. I think. Speaking to people in, in the Arab world, in the Gulf, uh, they do see Muqtada al-Sadr as the great Arab hope for, for Iraq. Uh, not only because he is an Iraqi nationalist, because he's somebody who prides himself on his Arab identity, but also because of his father's legacy. Um, he wasn't necessarily aligned with Iran. I think it's more out of necessity. Again, he's being pushed into Iran's orbit of influence. This comes back to my earlier point about how you, know, you, just, you can't ignore the Iranians no matter who you are, I would say, in Iraq, whether you're the Kurds, the Sunnis, or the Shias, etc. But what can the U.S. do about that? Uh, and you touched on a very important point about how the Iran-aligned proxies have their A-game when it comes to strategic communications. Right, right. You know, as soon as Kirkuk was taken, they were there. They made sure the cameras were on them. Right. They made sure it was them hoisting the Iraqi flag. Now, why can't their ri rivals, whether it's the U.S. or Western-aligned rivals, do the same? And here's where I think the U.S. can definitely play a much better role in amplifying the voices of its partners on the ground, the voices of those actors that do want to challenge Iran, because that's extremely important in this highly 
you know, populist environment uh, where you know, your, your, your media strategy, your ability to communicate and engage and mobilize Iraqis does depend on how you outreach and how you engage uh, via multiple propaganda outlets and media channels. If I just could yes, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I would wholeheartedly agree with the caveat that the U.S. has to do so in a manner that is not whitewashing. Whitewashing who? Whitewashing reality. Which reality? Because what we actually saw in Kirkuk was, yeah, the proxies front and center in raising the flag, and, and the U.S. actively denying yeah, that there course, were yeah, Iranian proxies involved. I agree. That is not effective messaging. That's, that's just not true. There were. It was, it was Hadi Al-Amri, and it was Abu Mehdi Al-Mohendis from Kitab Hezbollah that raised the flag, lowered the Kurdish flag of Kirkuk and raised an Iraqi flag along with, uh, with, along with a Kitab Hezbollah flag and a Badakor flag. The one at the Kirkuk Provincial Council wasn't then. They stood in the background while the ISF leaders raised it. But, but rather visible, nonetheless. They were in the background, and only the ISF, uniformed ISF leaders were allowed to raise the Iraqi flag. Much different from the, the video I, I saw. I saw the Iraqi security forces actually giving them a, a hero's welcome when they actually showed up to the flagpole. It may have been the Iraqis that raised oh, it. But well, they I bet were... you they took a couple, honestly, for their own purposes. But the famous one is of the Iraqi security force leaders right. raising we're... the flag, and Mohandis and Hadi Al-Amri standing in the background. Yes, yes. That was the photo for us. That was when they were asked, hey, we're going to take a photo with just the Iraqi military. Again, I've seen the professional military that, that you've talked about with coalition advisors, but you have to ignore who's standing in the background. You have to ignore the Hadi Al-Amri and the Abu Mehdi Al-Mohandis. To, to your point about um, Muqtad al-Sadr, to your point about the strategic communications, the rush to Kirkuk, Sadr tried to rush to Kirkuk with his, his militia, and they were turned away, and they were sent back by Hadi Al-Amri and Mohandis. They did not want Sadr to take any credit for what had happened in Kirkuk. Um, also, you're seeing security backslide in Kirkuk. But an, another point on these, we talked about charge of the Knights earlier. We talked about the, the Iraqi government's ability to go after Shia militias. Well, in charge of the Knights, it was Muqtad al-Sadr's guys that they went after. This was 2008. 2008. A, a, a Baghdad-led Maliki operation against Jaysh al-Mehdi in Basra and also on Sadr city. Well, the only militia that the Iraqi security forces are now starting to disarm, and the only militia contact with the Iraqi security forces has been Muqtad al-Sadr's guys. They're the ones being disarmed in, in Basra, and they're the ones that had the skirmish south of Hawija, north, northwest of Baghdad. So it's interesting that the great hope, his militia is actually being targeted not only by the Iraqi security forces, but also by the IRGC Quds Force militias, not in a campaign to wipe them out, but in a campaign to show who has primacy on the ground. And, and I guess my, my question would be is, you know, when I asked you earlier, and I want to ask all of you this question, if Prime Minister Abadi wins, is that success? I say it's not. Qasem Soleimani has been able to do everything he's wanted to do under Prime Minister Abadi. Um, and I, I want each of you to, to Tell me what happens if he wins that changes anything. Especially, you know, again, we talked about this coalition that Mike talked about with Abadi and the Fatah party actually deciding who controls ministries and who's going to be the prime minister. Um, what does that say to, to the Kurds? What does it say to traditional parties like the KDP and the PUK? What does it say to the Sadist movement? What does it say to Alawi's uh, movement as well, as well as Maliki's? Is it still called state of law for Maliki? Or is he calling himself something else now? State of law. State of law. Anyway, I'd like to pose that question to, to the panel. Um, 
what happens if a body wins and what happens if, if he doesn't? I mean, that's a bad question, but everything I said before that, kind of go with that and then, you know. So real quick, whatever, what, mo what matters most is whoever is prime minister, what they do as prime minister. And there's some individuals who it would send a very negative message if they were prime minister. I think somebody like Hadi Alamari and Baps would be, I mean, you know, it, it would be very shocking, let's say, right. to a lot of people. And there's some people who would send a very encouraging message, uh, you know, particularly to investors, IMF, World Bank, the internationals, or that, Abadi would be a very keen example. But all that matters is what they do with reference to uh, the economy, economic reform, with reference to anti-corruption, with reference to controlling militias, with reference to uh, our presence. Aren't you, aren't you worried about the narrative from the international community and the coalition that if a body wins, all is well in Iraq? Iraq is no longer in the Iranian sphere of influence. ISIS is defeated. We're good to go. Check the box. Let's, let's focus on something I'm, else. I'm not worried about that at all because uh, you are around, Mike. All right. Good, good. Thank you. Sure, I, I would agree with, with you, Mike. Um, I think the U.S. is in a bad position either way. Um, I think that's partly <clears throat> our fault for not having our heads on straight about what U.S. interests in this region actually are, what the requirements are to achieve those interests, um, and therefore the will to do what is necessary. So I think, quite frankly, we need to fix ourselves first. We need to actually diagnose and decide, are we going to own this problem set? Are we going to do what is necessary, or aren't we, before we start actually thinking about, okay, what, what needs to happen next in Iraq? Because the Iraqi elections are going to happen. Mm -hmm. We're already basically there. Um, I think we need to take 17 steps back and actually answer these hard questions, develop a coherent strategy, and then begin to execute it. I want to layer something on top of this. Uh, Ambassador Crocker yesterday at the Atlantic Council said that Iraq is on the right trajectory and is going down the right path. I disagree with that statement, but you know, again, Ambassador Crocker was a, as a key partner during the surge. He was Petraeus's right-hand man. He knows Iraq, he's concerned about Iranian influence. Yet yesterday at the Atlantic Council, he said that Iraq is going down the right path, and, and it has been for the last 10 years. But I don't understand that because you have this IRGC Quds Force proxy militia presence, and you now have an IRGC Quds Force aligned political party. Uh, again, we're, we're, I feel like we're swimming upstream with, with a lot of the powerful voices on Iraq, so McGurk, Petraeus, McMaster, Mattis, all saying that this is an Iraqi national military that's a bulwark against the IRGC Quds Force. ISIS is defeated. Iraq is no longer in the Iranian sphere of influence. And if a body wins, our guy in Baghdad won and all is well. I can't say that with you a straight face. Saying, you know nobody says exactly that, though. Like, Go back one slide, and I can tell you each individual that's No, no, look, look, they, can, they can read, so let them read while right. talking. But here's the thing. You, the first couple of bullet points I agree with totally. You know, uh, that, you know, people say that Iraq's on uh, a better path now. I think it is since 2014. I mean, honestly, once we got into uh, putting more technocratic individuals, particularly in the security forces, the change of leadership that we got in 2014 from the Prime Minister down, that stuff was positive and it has had positive effects. So whereas, you know, I don't think anyone's saying Iraq is no longer in the Iranian sphere of influence. I don't think any it's of those... It's dropped out of the narrative in DOD, DOS, and the National Security Council. It's dropped out of this, the narrative. The thing is you're either comfortable with the level of Iranian influence or you're mildly uncomfortable with it or you're deeply uncomfortable with it. You're deeply uncomfortable with it. I'm mildly uncomfortable with it. 
perhaps some people are comfortable with it. But, you know, that's the kind of scale we're really talking about. Look, it's, I mean, it, it's certainly an achievement that ISIS has been defeated. Its so-called caliphate is no longer in existence. Um, but ultimately, who are the real winners of this? Of course, the world is much better off. It's those actors not only that fought in the war, and there was a whole multitude of actors, not just the Iran online proxies, but which actors end up capitalizing on the post-ISIS political order uh, that is now in the making right now. Uh, and that applies to Syria as well. And it is, by and large, those Iran-aligned proxies, not just because of the way they've evolved, developed over the past number of years, but because, again, you know, they have a rather strong, reliable patron in Iran, which knows what it's doing. Uh, coming back to Jennifer's point about the US having to fix certain things about itself. On Abadi, and him potentially becoming prime minister again, I guess the first question is, you know, what, what choice does the US have? Is it really spoiled for choice uh, in Iraq? And I, I don't think it is spoiled for choice right now, in this current setting at least. And there are all sorts of reasons for that, which can be discussed and uh, debated. But let's say, if it wasn't Abadi, it could be Hadi al-Amri, for example. So it could potentially be worse, let's say, uh, if we look at it in terms of uh, how much or how less Iran's influence uh, becomes post uh, the elections. In fact, I would say we're heading down a path uh, where 15 years from now, Qaisal Khaz Ali could be Iraq's prime minister. At, 20 years from now. After the third Israel-Iran war? Uh, Who knows? The next, because, the next 10 years, have a because, third look, version of it. These groups, right. Ali's of Iraq and the Asaib Ahl al Haqs, right, right. they're looking at themselves and they're thinking, how did we really make it this far in Iraq? They're probably just as astonished as other people are. The way that things developed so much favorably for them is quite astonishing. But also the way they've developed. Well, as they're actors. the heroes of this war in a lot of cases. And, and you know, like it or not, they have to be respected for the way they've evolved, developed, matured, and the way they've filled voids, the way they've engaged with local communities and have capitalized on the shortcomings, not just of the US, but also the international community. It goes back, it goes back to Mike's point. It depends on what they do afterwards. It depends on who wins and what they do. Um, we started about five minutes late. I'd like to open up to questions now. Uh, and, uh, and then also give the panelists uh, a couple minutes just for closing comments. So I take questions in, in groupings, and I just ask you to identify yourself. And uh, if you're going to make a statement, keep the statement short and then get to a question. We'll start with this, uh, uh, another British accent. All right, we'll start with this gentleman here. Oh, we'll wait for the mic here. We've got to go to Jonas so we can hear that. Uh, Andy Cook, University of Leicester. Um, uh, I'll go back to you, what uh, Ambassador Crocker said yesterday at Atlantic Council. One of the things that, in response to your question, what, what advice would you give to the current administration? He said, decouple Iraq and Syria. And I'd like to see your comments. I've got loads of other questions, but I won't be greedy. Right, right. Uh, okay, we're going to take that first question, and then we'll, we'll put it to the panelists. So our second question, we'll go Laurie here. Um, and we'll get to you, sir. <clears throat> Laurie Milroy, Kurdistan 24. Uh, this question is for Ranj. You, you said it was something, a travesty, that the Kurds were now dependent, the Kurds, the US allies were now dependent on Iran. Could you expand on that and what the dependence involves? So, sorry, could you repeat that, the last part? Explain. You said in passing during your, conversa during your presentation that it was a travesty that the Kurds, America's long-term ally, were now dependent on Iran. So could you expand on that and explain how the dependence came about and what it entails? 
Okay, so that's question number two. That'll go to Ranj for this gentleman here, and then you, sir, back there. He's coming out. He's on the other side. We have multiple. Uh, Peter Humphrey, Intel analyst and a former diplomat. Um, we have some pretty fantastic intelligence on the corruption in the Iranian regime. I mean, down to the, Mullah, the names of the Mullah's girlfriends, what kind of exquisite gifts have been given to them, what the bank accounts of all the Mullahs look like. Um, why aren't we approaching this problem from a more top-down, uh, regime change-oriented, uh, major influence operation, a giant information operation, where we feed back all that corruption data into the population by every means necessary? Right. Let the people know. Us with that right now, actually. Huh? Ahmadinejad is actually helping us with that right now. If you're listening. Uh, <laughs> anyway, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, um, because, because ultimately, there's, there is room for regime change here. And every time Iran uh, you know, bothers us in Iraq or Syria, we can ramp that up and make it very clear that there's a link between the two. Right. Okay. And by the way, I use the term influence corridor rather than land bridge. All right. As long as we can take ownership of that, we'll, we'll float that as a doctrinal term. All right. And, and we'll, uh, Jonas, you have a question? So we're going to have four questions, and I'll read them back. Jonas Paul Plesner here with the Hudson Institute. Great uh, panel. I have a hopefully sort of easy question. I was just going to ask you, Mike, and others to sort of, if you're going to pitch all of this very shortly to President Trump, how you do that, and say how does this all really matter for the U.S. compared to a sort of trade war with China to North Korea and summit, and, and so the U.S. are already wasted, as he would say, sort of seven trillions in the Middle East. How can you sort of assure that anything would just not be a big waste of U.S. money in the future? Right. That's a very unfair question to have me sum up, but I'll try. Okay, so we have four questions here. Did I get the right or five questions? Yeah, five. Oh, and the gentleman here, this will be five. Let, let, yeah, okay. Yes, sir. So I wonder. Sorry. So I wonder if it's just this mindset of U.S. policy that's creating all this, and if this mindset won't change, what what's the use of uh, going ahead? You know, maybe the U.S. should just leave the Middle East and let Iran do what they have to do. All right. So I'm going to answer the first question and the last question with what advice would you give the administration? With that question there, a colleague of mine, Lee Smith, wrote an article on the Tablet Magazine, basically saying. We should get out. So not only get out of the Iranda, we should get out of out of Iraq and Syria, because again, everything we're doing, it, we're facilitating uh, what Iran wants to do in the region. And again, the 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 AUMF doesn't allow us to target Shia militias. So the one thing I would say is let's get out, because if we target Shia militias, we're all we're hostages there, because we have such a small footprint in Syria and Iraq, 5,000 in Iraq, 2,000 in Syria. You get out and you put designated terrorists back on the targeting list. Um, and uh, again, the second question was, um, which, which was the second question one more time? Would you remind me real quick? No, oh, it was yours, Lori, about you know, Ron's influence. So we'll, we'll hold that one. But I think we can, we can answer the, uh, the other question about information operations and what we can do. Uh, uh, again, this is more of a JCPOA focus on what to relist in Annex 2, and you're talking about the Supreme Leader's shell corporations amassed at, at, according to Ahmadinejad, which is great, 
uh, saying it's at $190 billion. So there are things to target there. Again, Iraq's economy is tanking, but I'm worried that they're going to use Iraq as that shell company to be able to sustain a lot of the things they, they want to do. And again, there's also the illicit cigarette trade that they're now cementing in Iraq. Um, there's a lot of things there. So again, uh, so the so the four the five questions: what should what should what recommendations would you give to the administration? Um, Ron, your question from Lori on influence with the PUK. And then we have, I answered the uh, first one and the fifth one. And then to Jonas's question, I'll get to that at the end of the first we have time. Decoupling Syria and Iraq, the first question. Mm. Yeah, I, I just said we get out. That's, that's the answer. We'll just leave the British get out. Anyway, no, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, attack it. <laughs> Well, I mean, I'll answer that decoupling yeah. question first because I'm quite astonished by that uh, remark uh, because, if anything, this conflict is a transnational one. What happens in Syria <laughs> has consequences for what happens in Iraq and vice versa as well. Uh, so, you know, if, we're if Iran is, is going to be contained in Iraq, that could end up being a good thing because of the consequences it has in Syria. So the more, uh, and, and bearing in mind, of course, you've got tens of thousands of Iraqi militias who are fighting actively uh, in Syria. Part of the reason why the Assad regime has survived for so long and has uh, or could ascend in the coming years is because of the resources that are flowing into Syria from Iraq. If the U.S., uh, if Iran wants to target the U.S., it could target it in Iraq, but also in Syria. So I think it's impossible to, to decouple that, given the overlap, I would say, between the two conflicts in, in multiple respects. Uh, sure, yeah, on this, I would just add... I think it would be great to decouple Syria and Iraq. I'm skeptical that it's possible. But one of the reasons why I'm not comfortable ceding Iraq to Iran or accepting the current and projected future level of Iranian influence um, is in part because ISIS is not actually defeated. Um, the doctrinal definition of defeat is, of course, to eliminate the will or capability to continue to fight. ISIS has both. They are regrouping in the areas of terrain that they still control in southeastern Syria. And we've actually already seen a resurgent campaign across historic Sunni um, jihadist support zones in Iraq. And we are actually heading into Ramadan, right. which starts the week after the Iraqi election, which is a typical period of a surge in ISIS's activity. And I would submit to you that Iran's sectarianism and its level of influence in Iraq is going to be a primary target for that ISIS campaign in an attempt to win back Sunni popular support and legitimize another round of this insurgency in Iraq, uh, much less in Syria. What's interesting about that is ISIS has also said that they are going to attack the voting sites. Yep. That that's a key, key thing that they want to focus on are the voting sites in Iraq. And Mike? Answer Laurie's. Oh, yeah, please, please. So, so on, on the, uh, the Kurds and dependency on, on Baghdad, on Iran, so what Kirkuk essentially meant for the Kurds was that right now they can't rely on the U.S. as they have been. Uh, so in a way, it's shifted the way they've looked at how they uh, conduct, let's say, their engagements with the rest of Iraq, where they just don't know whether America will be there for them once again if there is uh, a similar crisis. But also, they've now truly accepted to some degree, and for now, I would say, temporarily, this could all change, that to get out of this situation that they have economically, where they are being economically suffocated, they are suffering uh, politically as well, they do have to repair relations with Baghdad. However, they see them repairing relations with Baghdad and Baghdad being more comfortable uh, with the Kurds in Baghdad as a way of reassuring Iran. That's essentially the approach right now that is being taken out of necessity, 
Uh, and this comes back again to my earlier point, where if things continue as they are, uh, US-aligned, Western-aligned actors will continue to engage with their counterparts, their rivals, with Iraq, with the rest of the region, by way of the Iran-centric lens, which is precisely what Iran wants. Because although today we're talking about maybe a temporary dependency, although that just means you know, more openings and channels with the Iranians, if this continues the way it is, five years from now, a few years from now, we're going to see greater Iranian investments in Iraqi Kurdistan. And then that could develop into something much more significant, where you have a more significant military, uh, Iranian military infrastructure in Kurdistan itself. Do not rule these scenarios out. This, this of course, could be you know, a number of years down the line, but that is where things could end up in the way that uh, Baghdad and the rest of Iraq uh, ended up over the, over the past decade, where it became increasingly aligned uh, and pushed towards uh, Iran. Right. Uh, going real quick to the decoupling issue, ISIS sees Iraq and Syria as one battlefield, and so does Iran. So we, our biggest mistake in this whole ISIS strategy is we've seen a separate battlefield in Iraq, and we have separate strategies east and west of the Euphrates. So that's been something that's complicated this. To Jonas's, uh, what would you tell the president? I would say, Mr. President, you can't, you can't give President Obama a hard time for giving the Iranians $1.7 billion when you're doing it through the U.S. Training and Equip Program. You're allowing U.S. funds and equipment to get into the hands of RG Quds Force proxies. What's that? I think that would that would that's really one of the only levers we have, and I would say that the, walking away from the JCPOA gives us levers if we do it right. And I'll caveat that with saying we don't do things right. All right, go ahead, Mike. Wow. <laughs> so, so you're saying get out of Iraq and Syria, and don't provide any train and equip to Iraq anymore and get out of the JCPOA and start striking Iranian-backed militants inside Iraq and Syria? Absolutely. Mm. I'm saying that from, we don't have a military option on the table. That would be something that, of course, would walk back. I'm not a decision maker necessarily. But we have to put designated terrorist groups back on the targeting list. Uh, we have to use levers in Baghdad. We need to use the U.S. Training Equip Program as a lever. The JCPOA, everything that Iran has wanted to do under the JCPOA, they've been able to do. They've shored up Assad. They've been able to pay their militias. They're becoming an, they, they squandered the opportunity to become an economic power uh, by, by using all the money on adventurism. But the JCPOA, if nothing changes, allows Iran to become an economic power, conventional military power, continue its ballistic missile programs, and at the end of the 10-year mark, if everybody abides by it, become North Korea. Yeah. The JCPOA, if we walk away from the day after, we have levers. Iran's economy hurts. That needs to be a lever on the regime. The Iranians are actually saying to the regime, stop the adventurism in Yemen, in Lebanon, in Iraq, in Syria, and focus on us. They are the ones saying that that to your point, the Supreme Leader's assets, assets need to be gone after. We need to take everything on Annex 2. I don't care if we leave all the nuclear parts of the JCPOA alone. Everything in Annex 2 was designed to facilitate Iran's operational and terrorist networks. You had banks, frigates, uh, uh, shipping uh, uh, companies. Everything that they need to sustain Hezbollah and their proxies was delisted. You had the Supreme Leader's EIKO, or what we call Setad. That was delisted. There are so many levers we can use, but again, I'll caveat that. If the president walks away from the JCPOA and doesn't put sanctions on the Supreme Leader's assets and doesn't go after Annex 2, all the things that facilitate Iran's terrorist network that have led us to this position, 
Iran was much weaker before the Iran deal, then it doesn't matter. It won't matter. And the one thing I'll say about our European allies, if they're worried about investing in Iran now under the protections of the JCPOA, why would they do it with us out of it? Especially when we have the threat of US secondary sanctions, something the IMF and the World Bank are already looking at and warning Baghdad about penetration of its telecommunications sectors by Hezbollah, penetration of oil, reconstruction, and transportation by IRGC. These are things that are levers for the United States, for Treasury, but again, we haven't taken any steps to hurt the regime, even during the protests. We haven't sanctioned propaganda channels like the ones that were outside of, of Capitol Hill yesterday, uh, being able to put out anti-American anti uh, propaganda. It's fine if they do it here, we're a free society, but in that country, they silence other voices. Uh, so that, yes, I'm saying all those things. If, if Alawi wins and Fatah, everybody turns against Fatah, and we have a debarterification of the Iraqi security forces, or Hadi Al-Amri says, I'd rather work with a $19 trillion economy, then we start targeting AH, Kitab Hezbollah. And you know, a gentleman you cited today in the New America, uh, New America put out a blueprint for Iraq that was, I thought was through rose-colored lenses. Um, actually said to me, you know, AH is really not that bad. Case Ghazali is really not that bad. And, and, and we can't have that kind of thinking in, in I guess we can, we, we, diversity of opinion is fine. But yes, I do take that opposite position because it balances the other side that says everything is fine, don't worry about it. So absolutely, and hopefully somewhere in between, <laughs> where you have my extreme position here, and I view yours as, as an extreme position as well, Maybe somewhere between Jennifer and Ranj, we come up with the actual solutions. And uh, I think those conversations need to be had. You know, almost everyone but you thinks I'm extremely anti-Iranian. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I may make you look good in that sense. So I'm good for your brand. Um, so final thing for, you know, on, on the points that were made. I don't know if we have time. We've already gone through our answer. Go ahead. Please, no, go ahead. No, Seed to the gentleman. Go ahead. Fadl. <laughs> OK. Okay. Thank you. Uh, I just want to say one uh, small comment. When you said that uh, we gave $1.8 billion, uh, Obama gave to Iran, that was their own money since Carter. And the interest yes, yes, payment yes. on that. Is this a question or a statement? The question is this that uh, are we so impotent that we bellicosing without having a stick in our hands? What are we coming? What is the nation coming into? What, the United States or Taylor? Yeah, United States of America, Iran? yes, I'll where I live. Right. What has happened? Are we so impotent that we cannot deal with uh, 80 million people in Iran or other places in the world? What is going on? Okay, great question. All right, let me go back to, to uh, not answering that. I don't know, I shouldn't, I shouldn't say that. No, 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 I'm just saying, listen, the 400, the 400, million dollars that turned into 1.7 billion dollars those are those military contracts were for with a government that was overthrown by the islamic revolution i don't know why you i don't know why you give them interest over these things well we'll just have to disagree in another panel but we got to go all right so mike you're gonna have the last minute uh, real quick real quick just just three things 
which fits with the points. <laughs> Iraq, or I think Iraq has learned a number of lessons. They probably learned a number of lessons I don't know anything about. But, you know, one is this. Um, you can't have a stable Iraq without stable Syria next to it, or at least without the neighboring areas being stable. I think they know that pretty well now. That's one of the reasons they're striking into Syria now. The second, uh, Iraq kind of fell apart when it lost international security partners. Now, maybe it's the US, and I think there's a good case it is, and I think many Iraqis think that too. Some think it should be Russia, but let me ask you this. Like, who looks better right now, uh, Baghdad or Assad? I mean, honestly, like, the Russians may have saved Assad from completely falling, but he's probably not going to regain control of his entire country, and that country is utterly wrecked. Whereas uh, Iraq is in one piece now, probably in some ways stronger than it was in, uh, in 2014 in terms of cohesiveness, international partnerships, and a rebuilt security forces. We actually helped to save Iraq. All the Russians and the Iranians have done is leave Syria like the walking dead. You know? So they're, they're, they're not going to help you out of that. And the third thing the Iraqis have learned is that their economy is unsustainable. We're lucky the oil prices went back up. If they hadn't, there'd be some serious problems in Iraq right now. Iran and Russia are not going to help you out of that hole. They're just going to help you uh, drill a little bit more oil and not much. And they're not going to give you any money at all. And they're just going to extract money from your country and undermine your own industries and your own farmers. They're not part of the solution. They're part of the problem. So, you know, from that perspective, I think things are looking up. I don't think the Iranian and Russian model is as strong as people think in Iraq. It's a great message to the, to the Iraqis. And I hope this was somewhat beneficial. I really enjoyed it. Mike, thanks for being on the panel. Jennifer, Ranj, thank you all for staying a little bit later. Yeah, thanks. And uh, thanks for coming out.